Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you Hello, 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 and welcome back to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. We are back here for another week of, what should I call it, mayhem? We had jailbreaks last week. We have more jailbreaks this week. I don't even know when the jailbreaks are going to stop, to be perfectly honest with you. I might just change the title of this podcast to Jailbreaks and Stuff with Tori. Today, we are spending some time in the... The chef's kiss decades of the 60s and 70s. And we're going to get to know a woman who, how do I put this? How do I put this graciously? Um, Got herself into a lot of trouble and was the second woman ever placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. So there was one broad before her. There have been many broads after her. Yes, we're going to meet Marie Dean Arrington down in Florida. And before we get into the story, I wanted to cite a primary source here. In 2012, the journalist Gary Corsair went to the prison where Marie was and interviewed her for the first time in 30 years. And he has a great series in the magazine Lake and Sumter Style, which is a magazine published out of the city where Marie grew up. So obviously I'm going to link to all that in the show notes, but I wanted to call that out here. Also, guys, I just wanted to say something I noticed about myself. So as I was scripting this episode, I realized something that I do that I should not do and I'm not going to do anymore. Marie is black. She's a black woman. And I like mentioned that in the script because she is. And I realized, oh, I do that thing that white people do where if someone's white, I don't mention it. I just like, I don't know, like... I don't know. I guess I just use it as the default, which is not cool or true. So I wanted to say that even if you have not noticed that about me, I noticed it about myself now, better late than never. And just going forward, I'm just going to be um, more aware of that. And and I, I will, if people are, if women are white, I'm going to say that they're white. <laughs> okay. I think that's all I have for you now in the intro. I have some more thoughts, but I'll put them in the conclusion because I know we're all excited to get to the story. And let's go down to Florida in the 60s. Marie Dean Arrington had been taking matters into her own hands for her entire life. So when she found herself in a minimum security jail cell, well, what was she supposed to do? Just sit there? Marie was 35, and she'd been committing crimes for over a decade. At 23, while working at a motel as a maid, making 75 cents an hour for scrubbing floors, she suddenly realized that she could make a lot more money if she just robbed the motel instead. So she did it. She robbed her boss, and then she tied herself to a chair. When the police arrived, she said that she was a victim of the robbery. She might have gotten away with it if it weren't for her one weakness, cigarettes. The police noticed that there were fresh cigarette butts all around her chair, and they asked Marie how she had managed to smoke since her hands were tied. At that, she confessed. 
Now she was in far more serious trouble. She was facing the electric chair. But she'd been put in a minimum security room in the prison hospital at Florida Correctional Institute for Women at Lowell, even though the man who prosecuted her had protested wildly, saying she was dangerous and will kill again. So now she looked around the room. And she got to work. It's like she flew out of here, said the prison superintendent the next day. Marie was born in Leesburg, Florida, on August 8th, 1933. She was Black, and Leesburg was segregated at the time. She dropped out of school in sixth grade. And that is about all we know of her childhood. Decades later, when she spoke to a journalist named Gary Corsair about her life, she refused to tell him anything about those early years. Her sister wouldn't talk about their childhood either. All Marie ever said about that time in her life was in an interview in 1973, where she declared, I was never handed anything. Everything I ever got, I had to fight like hell for. Marie certainly did fight like hell, though she was often fighting on the wrong side of the law. One of her high school classmates remembers her as a peculiar person and a bad seed, who didn't get very much parental supervision, which led to a lot of drinking and running around with a bad crowd. In her 20s, Marie committed a series of offenses, from petty to serious. Forgery at age 22, assault at 23, larceny and robbery at 24, passing bad checks at 28, larceny and vehicle theft at 31. When it came to crime, she wasn't picky about her victims. She forged her sister's signature once to steal money from her bank account, and her sister seemed almost impressed by it, saying, Marie can imitate anybody. If she sees yours, that is, if she sees your signature, one time she will imitate yours. Most of the people who knew her, it seemed, knew that Marie wasn't to be trusted. No one said anything good about Marie, her high school classmate remembers. I knew she really did a lot of little, terrible things, bad things, whatnot, like stealing, drinking, and staying out all the time of the night with different guys. But I didn't have no idea that she would murder anybody. No, I didn't. Sure, maybe it was true that no one said anything good about Marie. But Marie herself thought that she was an okay person. She described herself as a loner, strong-willed, and proud. And the thing she was proudest of was her work as a mother. No matter what happened, and a lot happened, she never let her kids go hungry. She had five children in total, and she had two of them before she herself was 20. A girl, Marie Francina, and a boy, Lloyd. According to her daughter, Francina, Marie was an affectionate mom. There was nothing that my brother or I asked for that she wouldn't give us, even if she had to make arrangements to get it, Francina said once. Anything we really wanted, she would get. Her children knew that Marie was in and out of trouble with the law. Marie didn't try to hide that. But she made it very clear to Francina and Lloyd that this was a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do situation. 
Almost every time her kids left the house, Marie would sit them down first and tell them not to get into trouble. She'd say that if they saw someone doing something bad, they should ignore it and keep going. And she told them that it was extremely important that they avoid getting fingerprinted. A fingerprint, she said, was a black mark that will follow you to your grave. At some point, Marie got married. Her husband was named Lester Arrington, and he was a policeman turned bouncer who kept troublemakers out of a Miami nightclub and trained professional boxers in his spare time. Their marriage was troubled. According to one of Lester's boxers, Marie threatened to kill her husband. And on the 4th of July in 1964, she did. But she claimed self-defense. She and Lester started arguing on the beach, and according to Marie, Lester hit her. She pulled a gun from her purse in self-defense, and then she shot him accidentally. Another man witnessed the shooting, and he took a stray bullet in the thigh for his pains. And he actually testified at Marie's trial, saying that he'd seen Lester choking Marie. After the gun went off, Lester was still alive, but wounded. Marie left him, drove to her mom's house, and waited there until she got the call that her husband was dead. She then turned herself in. Her trial was brief, and the jury found her guilty of manslaughter, which is legally considered less serious than murder. She got out on bail and petitioned for a new trial. This created a delay in the legal system, which meant that for the next four years, Marie was walking the streets of Leesburg. She would have probably gotten a more serious charge, but the murder weapon couldn't be found. Marie claimed that she had slipped it into her husband's coffin so that it was buried with him. Sure, Marie's version of events could never quite be trusted, but the idea of Marie bending over her husband's coffin and tucking the murder weapon next to his corpse, well, that felt like something Marie would do. It was slippery, and so was Marie. Marie constantly told her kids to stay out of trouble. They were teenagers, and they'd stopped listening to her. 19-year-old Lloyd was starting to drift. He quit school. He ignored his grandma's attempts to reform him. Instead, he'd steal from his grandma. He became friends with a guy named Eddie Lee Daly, and the two of them would stay up all night drinking and plotting. They needed money, and so they started tossing around the idea of robbing a gas station. On July 6th, 1967, the boys, along with two of their friends, decided that it was time to put their plan into action. It was almost 11 p.m. when they walked up to the gas station. Two of them were stationed as lookouts, while two of them, including Lloyd, walked inside. One of those two was holding a 22 caliber pistol, but we don't know who it was, whether it was Lloyd or his friend. Inside, they found the attendant, Herman P. Lane, unwilling to fork over his cash without a fight. Herman grabbed the pistol from one boy while the other boy hit him from behind. The teens then took $40 and ran. Armed robbery is a serious crime, but this particular crime had turned out rather weak. The weapon was never fired, the gas station attendant had been hit, yes, but no one was killed and only $40 were stolen. But you wouldn't know that from the sentencing. Eddie was given probation for the next 10 years. The other kid involved was a juvenile and was sent to reform school. 
The third, it seems, was never captured. But the roughest sentence was reserved for 19-year-old Lloyd. For robbing a gas station, he was sentenced to life in prison. His pre-sentencing report declared that Lloyd was trouble, and so should be given a serious sentence because, quote, through his actions, he had given every indication of following in the footsteps of his mother. The man who had defended Marie's son was a public defender named Bob Pierce. He'd done a terrible job, Marie thought. Life in prison for her boy? It was insane. Marie's dislike of Bob Pierce grew even stronger when her 17-year-old daughter, Francina, got caught writing bad checks and had to go on trial. And what do you know? Bob Pierce represented Francina, too. In Bob's defense, he tried to get the judge to go easy on Francina, emphasizing that she was just a teenager and hadn't had the, quote, right supervision. You can imagine Marie's irritation at that phrase. But Bob's defense was unsuccessful again, and Francina was sentenced to two years in prison. Suddenly, both of Marie's children were locked up. Her beloved children, who she'd tried so hard to warn away from her life of crime, were now following in her footsteps. I had kids and I had to take care of them, she'd say later. To provide for them was right, even if I had to do wrong to do it. And how could she possibly provide for them now? She'd have to get them out, that's what. So she went looking for Bob Pierce, the lawyer who hadn't saved them. Bob Pierce was one of the first paid public defenders in Florida, and he ended up working as a public defender for 17 years. We have no reason to believe that he was a terrible defense lawyer. If anything, the person responsible for Lloyd and Francina's tough sentences was the judge, Troy Hall, who sentenced them both. But Bob became the main target of Marie's fury. Never mind the fact that she was still waiting to be sentenced for her manslaughter verdict of four years earlier. That wasn't going to stop her. So on April 22, 1968, Marie picked up a gun and went wandering around town. According to a statement by the Leesburg Police Department captain, Marie had a very busy morning. She went to her boyfriend's apartment and borrowed a dollar. She dropped off one of her little kids at the babysitter's. She bought a tiny bottle of whiskey and a Coke. She went to Bob Pierce's office and found it locked. She tried to speak to another lawyer, using an alias and saying that her son was in trouble, but that lawyer was too busy. She bought sunglasses. She went back to Bob Pierce's office for the second time. Bob Pierce wasn't there, but his secretary was. Her name was Vivian June Ritter. She went by June. She was 37 and a mother of three. June Ritter disappeared on April 22nd. The next day, Marie was questioned by the police. She said that she was out fishing with her cousin Ellie, and her cousin confirmed the story. June's car was found two days after she went missing. There was blood inside the trunk. Three days after that, June's body was found. She was lying in an isolated area outside of the city. She'd been shot three times in the back of the head, and run over by her own car. 
The city of Leesburg shuddered as over 100 police officers worked the case. Despite Marie's alibi, police were still suspicious of her. After all, eyewitnesses remembered seeing June, who was white, leave with a well-dressed black woman, and some of the eyewitness descriptions fit Marie to a T. And then, as the investigation progressed, Marie's cousin, Ellie, recanted her alibi. She hadn't been fishing with Marie at all, she said. Police confronted Marie again and demanded the truth, and Marie whipped out a news story. Okay, she said. She was at Bob Pierce's office that day, but here's the thing. She hadn't abducted anyone because she herself had been abducted along with June Ritter. Yes, said Marie. Two men and a woman had kidnapped them. The criminals drove June and Marie out to an orange grove and then drove Marie back to Leesburg, saying that if she said anything, they'd kill her, and that was why she had given that fishing alibi in the first place. Still sticking with her story of mutual abduction, Marie actually led police to an orange grove outside of the city, saying that this was where the abductors had taken her. It was there that police found one of June's stockings and one of her shoes. They searched Marie's home and found more damning evidence. A ransom note tucked underneath her bathtub addressed to Bob Pierce, demanding the release of three boys in jail. The letter said, quote, You will be given the names at a later date. It was unclear if Marie was using the idea of three boys to hide her identity rather than asking specifically for her children's release. Police also found June Ritter's watch with the letter. The ransom note explained that if Bob Pierce did not help to get the prisoners released, he would, quote, receive the arm that was wearing this watch. So on, until you have every part of her body, piece by piece. They found another threatening note in the pocket of one of Marie's robes. This note was meant for the wife of Troy Hall, who was the judge who had sentenced Marie's children. The note said that there was a pistol pointing at the wife's head, and unless she accompanied the person who wrote the note, she'd be shot. It looked like the type of note you would write if you were planning to kidnap someone and wanted to force them to come with you quietly. It was all pretty damning evidence, but Marie stuck to her story that there were others involved. And there were a few little details that didn't quite square up with the law enforcement story of how the crime had happened. For example, one of the eyewitnesses remembers seeing June in the car with a heavy-set black woman, but Marie was tiny. However, according to Marie's story, the woman who helped to kidnap her in June was heavy-set. And it wasn't out of the question to think that Marie had gotten swept up in something larger than herself, something of the organized crime persuasion, for example. For years, she had been involved with what she called the rackets, where she earned hundreds of dollars a week running drugs and fake money from Miami to Central Florida and back again. She would wear a maid's uniform and waltz into the ritzy hotels on Miami Beach to pick up or drop off some illegal package, and no one ever questioned her. It was lucrative work, $100 for a quick drop-off that might take 20 minutes total. But this meant that she rubbed elbows with some very dangerous people. Years later, she'd tell a journalist, the rackets that made me broke me. She'd refuse to elaborate. Her trial began on December 5th, 1968. It was a brief affair. She was found guilty of first-degree murder the very next day by an all-white jury. She showed no emotion during the trial. She was very, very cold, said the jury foreman. 
The evidence against her wasn't terribly concrete. There was no physical evidence linking her to June's body, no fingerprints of hers found on June's car, but there were the eyewitnesses, the ransom notes, and more evidence of her rage. At the home of the judge who sentenced her kids, a police officer found a cut screen door, excrement on the floor, and Marie's fingerprint on his car. She was sentenced to death. Marie was placed in the Florida Correctional Institute for Women at Lowell, the same prison that held her daughter, Francina. It was there, despite the protests of her prosecutor, who howled that she was dangerous and will kill again, she was put in a minimum security hospital room. The prison authorities seemed to understand that Marie's room wasn't quite up to snuff, at least when it came to keeping a convicted murderer inside of it, and so they ordered materials to improve the room's security— But those materials had not yet arrived by March 1st, 1969, three months after her trial. That night, Marie got busy. She lit matches and she singed the mesh screen of her window until it weakened enough to tear a hole in it. She rolled up a blanket on her bed to look like a sleeping body. And then she shimmied out through the hole in the screen, wearing her pajamas and a housecoat. She climbed two fences topped with barbed wire and she disappeared into the woods. Police brought out their bloodhounds and combed through the woods outside the prison, but Marie wasn't there. It's like she flew out of here, said the prison superintendent. Bob Pierce, the public defender, received the news of her escape with horror and started carrying a pistol, sure that Marie was heading straight for him to finish what she'd started. But Marie didn't go anywhere near Bob Pierce. She'd vanished into thin air, as far as the police could tell. After three months of fruitless searching, the FBI placed Marie on their 10 most wanted list, giving her the dubious honor of being the second woman ever placed on the list. The first was Ruth Eisman Shear, who helped her boyfriend kidnap an heiress in Georgia. A year passed, and Marie was still missing. Two years passed, and even though Florida newspapers printed regular updates and law enforcement continued to search, there was still no sign of her. Police told the papers that Marie was an expert forger, a fashionable dresser, a master of disguise, and a cold-blooded killer. Journalists warned the public that she was known to have a ready supply of wigs. Marie wasn't there, but her presence was felt around every corner. Troy Hall, the judge who sentenced her children, received an ominous package in the mail, a voodoo doll with a pin in its heart. A local sheriff received threatening phone calls and a note that said he would get what was coming to him for what he'd done. In the meantime, Marie's daughter, Francina, was granted parole. Francina's time in prison hadn't been easy. She'd been given two years originally for forgery, but then got additional time tacked on her sentence for an escape, an escape attempt, and participation in a riot. Like her mother, she saw no reason to stay behind bars when she could see a quicker way out. After three years, she finally walked out at age 21, but there was still no sign of her mom. Finally, Authorities began tapping the phones of Marie's friends and family members, desperate to find her. And then they got something. 
her pastor received a call from a phone booth in New Orleans. So the FBI headed down to the Big Easy to find their most wanted lady. Marie knew that the FBI had arrived in town. She looked out of her New Orleans window one day and saw a car parked outside and said to herself, yeah, that's them. She'd been keeping an eye out for the feds for months. She was working at a soda fountain, calling herself Lola Nero. Every time post office workers came in to order lunch, she cringed, wondering if they'd recognize her from the FBI's wanted posters that were pasted in post offices. I was frightened, but I always held my head high, she said. I never looked suspicious. I never looked over my shoulder. Bitterness kept me going, she said. At night, though, she waited to be caught. She was always expecting a knock on the door in the dark, always expecting the feds to show up on her doorstep. She found a small joy, though, in reading the paper's breathless reportings of her case. She said it would tickle me pink to pick up the papers and read that I was cited in California or New Jersey. And then one day, the feds finally showed up. They sat at her lunch counter and ordered milkshakes. She brought them over in frosty metal cups. The feds secretly pocketed one of those cups, took it back to the lab, and lifted her fingerprints off it. As they suspected, Lola Nero was none other than Marie Dean Arrington, the most wanted woman in the country. When Marie first had noticed their car outside her window, she thought about running. But there was something stronger than the call of freedom that beckoned to her. I could have taken off again, she said, but I was tired of running. I wanted to see my kids again. Marie was arrested on December 23, 1971. Bob Pierce breathed a sigh of relief, but couldn't fully relax. When he passed away in 1990, his obituary mentioned that he never got over his fear of Marie. For the first 11 months of her re-imprisonment, Marie was kept in isolation and then transferred to another prison, where she tried to escape by, wait for it, cutting a hole in her screen window. She wasn't on death row for long. In 1972, the Supreme Court put a moratorium on the death penalty, and her sentence was changed to life in prison. When she was taken to court to have that sentence changed, she was accompanied by 20 police cars, and the courthouse was surrounded by armed guards. Everyone was terrified that she'd try to escape again. But she didn't. The next year, she told a journalist that she'd prefer the death penalty. That way you know what's coming, she said. Marie didn't speak to the press for decades after that, though she kept busy in prison, racking up violations for possessing weapons, possessing drugs, battery, lying to staff, and inciting a riot. In 2012, over 30 years after she gave her last interview, she agreed to talk to Gory Corsair from the Leesburg magazine Lake and Sumter Style. She agreed to the interview on the condition that Gary leave her children out of the story. He found Marie, at 78, sitting in a wheelchair with a Virgin Mary medallion around her neck. She hadn't lost her old slipperiness, though. She declared that she couldn't have killed June because the person who shot June Ritter had to have been left-handed and tall, and she was right-handed and short. When Gary asked, skeptically, 
Now, where'd you hear that? She responded, I can't tell you that, and laughed. At other points, she expressed remorse, but mostly for herself. Nobody has to judge me because I judge myself, she told him. I am hard on myself. I am my own tormentor. From the way things turned out, I can't blame nobody but myself. It hurts, yeah. It really hurts. And there have been times when I have said, I don't have nothing. I lost everything. This world, if I left it today or tomorrow, it wouldn't matter. In my prayers at night, I have asked God to stop my suffering, to take me out of this world. I don't have nothing to stay here for. Two years later, in 2014, she passed away of heart trouble at age 80. Today, her son is still in prison, and journalists have been unable to track down her daughter, those two beloved children that Marie, in all her wandering, never forgot. I would have done anything for my kids, she told a journalist in 1973. Anything but murder. I've done things I could have gotten 100 years for, but I was never caught. Her prosecutor had called her a mad dog killer who has the cunning of a wild animal. And Marie didn't protest that description. They called me that because I lived by one rule. If you don't want it done to you, don't do it to me, she said. The wildest animal in the jungle is going to fight like hell if she has babies. No matter what I've done wrong, I'm still mama to my kids. For all her talk of motherhood, she never spoke much of June Ritter, shot three times in the back of her head, taken away from her three kids. But maybe June haunted her anyway. You can't get rid of your problems in a place like this, Marie told the journalist of prison. They just keep staring you in the face. The end, everyone. Thank you for listening. What did you think of Marie? I think she's almost a folkloric figure. I had never heard of her until recently, but after hearing about her, yeah, there's something folkloric about her with her run to New Orleans and hiding out from the feds and all the like bopping in and out of jail. And that same folkloric nature of her crimes makes it easy to forget that a woman died very, very brutally. You know, June Ritter's kidnapping must have been so terrifying and her death was awful. So I hope we can remember that while we hear the story of Marie. But yeah, it's a wild story, isn't it? Um, You know what else? Like, okay, there's one detail from this story that is really stuck in my head. And I'm actually, I'm on my computer right now and I have a computer tab open. So you know I'm telling the truth. It's the sentence given to Marie's son, Lloyd, the lifelong sentence. It just like made me feel so claustrophobic, you know, like he robbed a gas station as a teen, armed, but no gun was ever fired. And we're not even sure if he had the gun or his friend did. And he got life in prison. The tab that I have open on my computer is a tab from the Florida Department of Corrections. And it's his inmate population information detail. And I've just had it open for like a week. And sometimes I look at it. um, You know, he's an old man now. He has gray hair and just doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem right. Um, so it's got me thinking more about over sentencing and like excessive sentences, which I know is 
not a new thing, but I think I've been thinking about other things. Like I've been thinking about female criminals and sometimes wrongful conviction and there's a lot to think about in this world and but it, it's just now sinking in like ooh over sentencing is a real problem to put it mildly so if that's something that you think about or like have resources on or are passionate about please reach out i have the equal justice initiative also open on my computer i'm looking into their work but i i'm interested in digging more into this and just, I don't know, getting some more facts and maybe seeing, like, what we can all do. On a lighter note, I'd like to thank my new patrons this week who are, all of you are instrumental in keeping this train going. You are the wheels on my rickety little train. The first patron's name you might remember from last episode. Thank you to Denise M. Testa for becoming a patron. Thank you also to Diana D., Roxanne T., Constance A, David E, and Amy M. I feel like you are all amazing people, and thank you so much for being here. I'd also like to thank my research assistant, Jillian Collins, for digging up amazing information on Marie. And I would like to thank my podcast editor, Jennifer Longworth, who does a fantastic job, as well as the boys who did the music for my episode, Dan Pearson and Peter Mannheim of Stereo Dog Productions. So thank you all for helping me. And I'll see you here next week, listeners, my loves. Oh, I forgot something I was going to tell you in the intro. Fine, I'll say it here. I was recently on my friend Rebecca's podcast, Dialogue, which um, I think my episode is coming out February 3rd, so you'll be able to hear it soon. And I spend, I'm going to say 99% of the episode, just kidding, maybe 20% of the episode, talking about my criminal broads listeners. It's like a whole topic of conversation. I'm like, I love them. Here's what they do. Here's what they message me. Let me tell you about this one message. Let me tell you about this other message. So get excited <laughs> for that. All right. I'll see you back here next week for a story that seems kind of silly at first and then gets really sad really fast. Until then, have a lovely week. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.